You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. I just feel like we need to take a moment and say, Lord, hallelujah. What a great, great morning. I hope you feel it like I do. So much emotion, even tears, to see the transformation of lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why we exist as a church. So thank you, Lord, for your kingdom coming. We're in a series, Gospel of Luke, titled The Real Jesus. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles, Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses And uh, to launch us this morning, I want to go a little bit retro, dated story here. Most Americans don't remember the name or face of Vinko Bogotaj. However, millions of Americans like me, including myself, will never forget the event that, generally speaking, defined his life. Vinko represented his country of Yugoslavia. As a 22-year-old novice at the 1970 World Ski Flying Championship in Germany, as Vinko prepared for his last jump, weather worsened, requiring authorities to shorten the run and delay his flights. Check out this wide world of sports clip that made Vinko Bogotaj an American legend. The youngster is inexperienced. He fell on his first jump. A lot of speed in that track. Now, look, out! look at him go! Oh, oh. oh, baby. What a terrible fall. How many of you remember that scene? Okay. There's only a few of us who are this dated. Life goes on. Well, here's the deal, folks. As Vinko prepared for his last, uh, as the crowd gathered around Vinko, it was no joke, but it all became a beautiful ending. Vinko only had a few bruises and a mild concussion. He went on to ski again. However, for the next 30 years, the theme song of ABC's Wide World of Sports was defined by Vinko. Take a look. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. Well, as you can see, if you have a Connect card, I titled this morning's message, The Thrill of Victory or the Agony of Defeat. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says this about your life and mine if you're in Christ. Follow along. He said, in all things, we are more than victorious through him who loves us. This is God's will for us this morning, that we live victorious in Christ. The interesting thing, the Greek word there is nikao, where we get the English word Nike. That's all Nike means, victory. However, just like in the world of sports, living victoriously is easier said than done. And I might ask the question, why? Well, the 
Reasons are many, but I want to share with you quickly three reasons why defeat is often our experience in the Christian life. There are great oppositions against us finishing well, living victorious Christian life. And the first one is the appetite of the flesh. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatians, he, he talks about a warfare, he talks about a battle, and he says this, that our flesh wages war against the Spirit. Some translations say literally there was a battle going on. A young man asked the minister, saying, Pastor, when will I reach the point when the sins of the flesh will no longer appeal to me? The pastor said, and I quote, son, I wouldn't trust myself until I was dead three days. There's some truth to that. Opposition number one, the fleshly appetites. Opposition number two, the systems of this world. And again, I can't go into uh, depth of what this means, but the Apostle John says this, that there is a love that you and I can have for the world. And he says, don't love the world. And what he's talking about is not God's creation, which is good. He's saying, don't love the world system. In fact, in 1 John it says that the world system partners with the appetites of our flesh. And so it works in concert with the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and one of the worst things in life, the pride of life. And so what we have to do is push back against the systems of this world. And then the final one is the ultimate adversary, the devil. The apostle Peter wrote these words, be serious, be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Now, in our sophisticated culture, many deny the existence of the devil, and friends, even Christians. Barnett did some research not too long ago, and he discovered that 40% of professing Christians believe this, that the devil is not a living being or reality, but just a symbol of evil. However, the Bible, and we'll see in our text this morning, clearly, clearly pushes back against that. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 11, we read, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Notice so that you can stand against, that you can live victorious against the tactics of the devil. And so two questions as we look to Luke 4. Where do you see yourself this morning? Would you say, generally speaking, you are living a victorious Christian life? Or would you say there seems to be more defeat, more agony of defeat than victory? And so it pushes us to an ultimate question. How do we live the victorious Christian life? First John talks about living hooper victorious, super victorious because of Christ. And again, that's God's goal. And so in his book, The Spirit of Disciplines, Dallas Willard promotes a paradigm shift suggesting we need to stop trying to be like Jesus. Now stick with me. That might sound weird or strange. Stop trying to be like Jesus. Why? I thought that's the ultimate thing we should do. No, instead, Dallas says this, the biblical and wise approach for victorious Christian living is to start training to be like Jesus. How many of you would agree there's a big difference between trying and training? At Life Group this past Wednesday, uh, Jim Plaguey, 
He just kind of, in passing, says, hey, you want to run a half marathon with me this coming Saturday? How do you think I responded? <laughs> Jim, I'm with you in spirit. I'll be thinking of you. Weather looks good. Now, humbly, I'd like to say this. Maybe, just maybe, I could run a half marathon, but I promise you this. I would have to train beforehand. It would be foolish to try to run the marathon without the training. That's what we're going to see in this passage with Christ. There's a spiritual boot camp that's coming in Luke chapter 4. The Apostle Paul understood this motif of training. In fact, when he came to genuine faith in Christ, we understand this, that he took a three-year hiatus and went into training discipling, recalibrating his old paradigm for the new wine in Christ. So he writes this to Timothy. He says, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. Since it holds promise, notice, to the present life and also for the life to come. So the encouragement this, this morning is to be trained like Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what it says. Jesus returned from the Jordan. Pastor Jason unpacked this last week. Jesus Christ is baptized. Heaven opens. The Father speaks. The Son is affirmed. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You're going to see twice as Satan confronts Christ, tempts Christ, Christ, he tempts them against his sonship. So we come out of the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Now, folks, this might be a surprise to you, but please realize this. This conflict between the Son of the living God and Satan himself was not initiated by the devil. Look at the verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit. This was initiated by God. This is the Spirit of God directing the Son of God immediately after the baptism and affirmation from heaven. And so it begs the question, really, what, what's going on here? I believe this, this encounter with Satan depicts Jesus on the offensive being intentionally led by the Spirit to confront the forces of evil, and yes, the devil himself. This encounter in Luke is the final training ground, a spiritual boot camp of sorts, a preparation stage for what is to come in Galilee in the next few verses. And so that leads to the blessing. Each one of us can experience victorious Christian living by training ourselves, to, like Jesus did, in godliness. And so, putting aside trying to be like Jesus and embracing, training to be like Jesus. So three things about training. Number one, pursuing sacred spaces. We're going to discover all through the study in Luke that Luke is a big fan and demonstrates that Jesus prioritized sacred space for spiritual training, for development, and for intimacy with his Father. We've talked about sacred spaces now for over a year. Look back again to Luke 4, 1 through 2. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. The phrase in the wilderness is strategic. 
And when you look at the biblical narrative, the wilderness is a sacred space. It is a place that God chose to form his people. Track with me quickly. Moses is on the mountain in the wilderness doing what? Meeting with God for 40 days and 40 nights. This is harsh terrain. This is isolation. This is uh, uh, preparation. And God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes down off the mountain. Then it's very clear that Moses writes all about the training of Israel in the wilderness. When you look at a map, the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land, there was a much shorter route. But God, to test and to train his people, chose a totally different route through the wilderness to grow their faith. Sadly, during that time, only two, Joshua and Caleb, of a whole generation passed the test. And then we've already explored John the Baptist. Not only did he minister in the wilderness for about a year, he literally grew up in the wilderness. This is his home. And so now again, strategically, Jesus Christ enters the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, sacred space. A few chapters later, Luke continues to demonstrate the sacred space In Luke 6, we read, during those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. He spent all night in prayer. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them. Think about the strategy here. He's about halfway into ministry before he goes up into the mountain. Let me show you a picture of the mountain that some of the historians and scholars believe. This is Mount Arbel. This is Northwest Sea of Galilee. It is majestic. You can capture all of Galilee from this mountain. It's a nice little hike. Ellen and I have been up there. We get a sense that Jesus found this beautiful place called Arbel or Mount Hermon in the north, and he got away. He retreated. But he comes down off the mountain with such an important decision. The crowds are there. And he says, hey, John, come. You're one of the apostles. Hey, Matthew, Would you join the team? He chooses 12 to be with him only after spending sacred time with his father, hearing from his father about his father's will. If that doesn't inspire you enough, and we could go on and on in Luke, let me give you one more verse from Luke 9. About eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James, And where did he go? He goes to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. And again, folks, sacred space. And what happens, he is transfigured. Peter, James, and John get to see the glory of God in their presence. What an experience. But it came in a sacred environment. Now, you might ask, might ask the question, why sacred space? And please hear me. Here's the thesis this morning. Because all of life is sacred. Do you believe that this morning? All of life is sacred. There is no dichotomy between what we call the sacred and the secular. Like somehow Sunday or, or life group or a prayer meeting is a sacred time or my quiet time in Bible study is sacred. But then when I go off to work or I go to the gym or I go to the theater, that's all secular. No, folks. Here's the beautiful thing. All of life is sacred. Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. Therefore, choosing daily some sacred times for space with God. It's a beautiful thing. 
So how does it work out practically at Westwind? We are trying to develop more sacred space. After worship, elders will be down front. You can come, share your heart, your story. They want to pray with you. That's sacred space. 8.30, just down the children's wing, there is a classroom where they're praying, sacred space. Between practice and worship, ministry teams are praying, sacred space. When we put out concerts of prayer, what we're saying is, body of Christ, people of God, come together for sacred space on the mountain to meet the Lord. But then personally, do you have those places where you meet with God? Ellen and I have shared already that one of our sacred times is prayer walking. And as I've tried to reflect on where is sacred space as husband and wife, we prayer walk a lot and love it and enjoy it. It becomes a sacred space. Even today, it's going to be how warm? 40-something? I said, honey, why don't we just go downtown after church and, and walk the river? Sacred space, time with God, time with each other. But how about personally? Do you have a place like the mountain, a place to retreat, no distractions, where you stand in awe of God, where you open up the word, and your delight is in him, there's fellowship, there's God experiences, and you meet with him. And then when it comes time to make decisions, like choosing the 12, when it comes time for a God moment, he reveals his glory in the transfiguration, it comes from his presence. I encourage you, folks, professionals at work, find sacred space. You might get that 15 or 30-minute break, uh, break time, coffee. Maybe take a walk. Grab a cup of coffee in your Bible. Some way to refresh your spirit to keep the day going in Christ. So Jesus starts with sacred space. Secondly, training number two, practicing a life of surrender Look to Luke 4, 2 through 4. Luke 4, 2 through 4 records the first of three temptations. Follow along, please. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Now again, folks, you got to realize this. Jesus is fully man right here. This is a real temptation. He didn't eat for 40 days. Take the scripture for what it says. How is he feeling? He's feeling weak. He's feeling vulnerable. He's feeling isolated. He's feeling worn out. And look what happens. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, remember, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you are the son of God, he's coming right at him. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answers him from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man must not live by bread alone. Now, please hear me about temptations. Most of the time, temptation begins with something good, like food, rest, God-approved sex, the need to be loved or accepted. You know what's real interesting about this passage? Luke records that the fast was over. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, it's done, and now he's being tempted to eat. Why not day 30 or day 35? It's over, it's time to eat. So what is going on here? I believe this, Satan wants Jesus to live independently of the will of God and to not rely on his heavenly Father to provide what? His daily bread. So intervene, do your magic, turn stones into bread. Don't worry about your heavenly Father providing your daily bread. The lesson is clear. Like Jesus, we need to surrender our comfort 
for his calling. It would have been really easy just to turn the stone into a nice Subway sandwich, you know, pepperoni pizza, real easy, could have done it, and it was time to eat. But here's what Jesus said, John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I have a greater food to eat, and I'm not going to satisfy for the immediate comforts. Todd Hunter wrote a book titled Our Favorite Sins. It's a surprising book because he unpacks the top five self-reported temptations of sins in America right now. Folks, uh, I was astounded by the sins that the average Americans are reporting. Let's take a look. At the top of the list is anxiety or worry. 60% of Americans right now, six out of 10 say, I'm a worry wart. Continue on, 60% said procrastination is their nemesis. 55% they struggle with overeating comfort food. 40% overusing electronics and social media. Anybody be honest about that? Nope, just one, all right. Don't, don't wanna get too close. And then 41% confessed laziness. What I find interesting about those five, four of them relate to comforts. Man, just be a couch potato, watch another movie over the weekend. Hey, let's do a movie weekend. Six movies this weekend. Count me out. How about procrastination? Man, I've been working on that Peyton job for months now, and the wife has to crack the whip. Some of the men are mad. Please remember, temptation comes with good things. But what happens? When rest, food, media become counterproductive and destructive, the good thing becomes bad. There was nothing wrong with Jesus eating food. What Satan was trying to do is get him off point. So... Luke 5, or 4, 5 through 8, records Satan's second temptation. Let's take a look. So he takes him up, and he shows him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority. The devil said to him, or all this authority because it has been given over to me, and then I, will, I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. How does Jesus answer again? It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, again, deliberately, because of the wilderness wanderings and the shortcomings of Israel in the wilderness, three times he comes back to Deuteronomy. This here he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Here's what I would suggest, and there's so much you could say about this temptation, but at 50,000 feet, the second temptation is to offer Jesus a kingdom without a cross. Don't miss that, folks. Here's the kingdom. Here's the splendor, here's the glory, take it now, not later. We've already discussed this. Jesus first came as a suffering servant, Messiah ben Joseph, who would give his life, and then the conquering king, Messiah ben David, is in the future. Satan's saying, let's reverse that. Let's take the kingdom without the cross. The devil always tempts to take the path of least resistance. However, spiritual shortcuts never pay off. Folks, as a pastor for over three decades, I see so many shortcuts. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I'm just gonna do my own thing. And all of a sudden, boom, the exit, the marriage, or short circuit a relationship. 
instead of working through the forgiveness, instead of going through the counseling, instead of opening their hearts to do soul surgery. God wants me to be happy, therefore I take the path of least resistance. And biblically speaking, to have God's kingdom without the cross is impossible. They go hand in hand. So the lesson is clear. Like Jesus, we need to surrender the temporal, the now, the immediate, with the goal of the eternal. Isn't that what Moses did? He gave up the pleasures of sin in Egypt. He was looking forward to a greater kingdom, the eternal. Recently, the elders and staff have decided to fast one day a week uh, through the end of February. And it's a very good thing, folks. It's to just... Ask God to reveal his will, to keep us unified, to give us direction. It's a beautiful thing. And so I'm thankful for their commitment. But I know one thing, I'm just going to speak from my heart, not from theirs. Here's the first thing that happens when you give up the temporal, the now, the today, for the eternal. Rationalization sets in. I've experienced it all the time. Full week. Man, I need to eat. I'm tired. Oh, man, just a piece of fish. Bowl of popcorn can't hurt anything. And all these voices go through versus saying, what a privilege to give us something I love now for eternal benefits. When you think about fasting, whether it's from food or others, it's one simple thing. Lord, I love you more than the thing that I'm giving up. I am committing to the eternal, not to the temporal. But I promise you, the enemy is going to push back, just like he did with Jesus. Choose the kingdom now and never the cross. And of course, we know Christ chose the better. Philippians 2.8 teaches Jesus humbled himself by living completely obedient to the Father. He chose the eternal over the temporal. Jesus passes these temptations by completely surrendering. And so the lesson is clear. Like Jesus, we need to surrender control. We need to surrender trust. Now, trading number three, prioritizing Scripture through meditation and memory. Jesus was battle ready. That's very clear in this temptation. And so he goes into the wilderness with the full armor of God on. And three times Satan attacks. And three times how does he respond? He responds with the word of God. Just an FYI, Jesus lived in an oral culture where people didn't have Bibles in their homes. They didn't have manuscripts in their homes. But they internalized the word of God. And so what happens here, in Luke chapter 4, look at verse 4. Jesus says, it's written, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. Luke 4, 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Luke 4, 12, Jesus says, it is said, don't test the Lord your God. And here's the beautiful thing about Christ, Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's our Savior. The word of Christ was in him, therefore in the temptation it comes out of him. And so how does this play out just daily in your life and mine? Well, let's say you're dealing with loneliness. We have a dear friend who's 76, just lost his wife. We met with him the other week, he's lonely. Where do you go? You go to Hebrews 13. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. If I'm for you, who can be against you? Let's say you're dealing with fear. Lord's calling you to do this ministry, but you're not sure, you feel fearful. What do you do? You go to 2 Timothy 1. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and sound mind. Let's say you're dealing with overeating. That's a real issue in our culture, folks. Where do you go? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 
whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Let's say you're dealing with slothfulness. Go to Proverbs 6. Watch the ant. What is the ant doing? He's working hard. He's preparing for winter, and he has no master, no slave driver. He's all in. And folks, for any temptation, Scripture says this, there is a way of escape, and Jesus says start with Scripture. Push back against the tempter. Give him Scripture. What do you do with anxiety? Jesus says, Matthew 6, God takes care of the birds of the field. He takes, or birds of the air, the lilies of the field. He will take care of you. Aren't you much more valuable than birds or lilies? You are. And so in closing, like Jesus, we can overcome temptation, not by trying harder, but by training more and building spiritual strength that will enable us to stand firm. Now I want to close with one more paradigm shift that I think is probably the most important paradigm shift of this message. I do believe with Dallas Willard, it's not trying to be like, but training to be like Jesus. I do believe that with all my heart. Dallas was a leader in discipling, so if we embrace that, I think we embrace the model of Christ. But the greatest paradigm shift is this from this passage. If we only view Jesus as an example in Luke 4, I think we miss the point. He was an example, and he was so much more. He was an example of victorious living. But folks, it's way bigger than that. What is the point of Luke 4? Jesus lived perfectly victorious to become the Savior and Messiah of the world. Why? Because no one here this morning has ever lived perfectly victorious. And so Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You know what the temptation was in Luke 4? Satan was coming after him with his best arsenal to deter him from becoming the savior and Messiah of the world. But listen to what Hebrews says. We'll close with this. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, notice the next phrase, yet without sin. Take that in just for a moment. We know something about every human heart here today, including mine. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen prey to temptation. We've never lived perfectly victorious. But Jesus has. Aren't you glad for that? That's reflected all throughout Luke as Satan, with his arsenal, comes after him time and time again to try to get him off points. In Gethsemane, oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of death, the cup of Calvary pass. Nevertheless, I surrender. Your will be done. He went all in. He lived perfect. Now, look at how we then have the privilege to engage him. Let us then approach the throne of grace. How? With confidence so that we may receive mercy when we fall short. We may find grace when we miss the mark to help us in our time of need. And so, yes, let's train to be like Jesus. Let's work towards super victorious Christian living. However, when you fall short, where do you run? You run to the perfect one who conquered death, Satan, 
live perfectly victorious. Let's stand, let's worship together. Been a Christian 41 years, and I think that song means more to me today than ever. I'm acutely aware that today, tonight, tomorrow, this week, Satan can come. Ephesians 6 calls it the day of trial. He wants to deter us from fulfilling God's will, from completing the work God has given us to do, and everybody has a task. And so where are you in your spiritual journey today? Are you experiencing victory, the thrill of victory, or is there defeat? We have elders here this morning who will be up front to be with you, pray with you, to encourage you. We're always available, as Pastor Jason said. Folks, we want to help you in this journey. I asked a few folks right towards the tail end about 9.30. I felt an overwhelming weight today before I got up to preach. I felt the attack. My heart was just way beyond normal, just racing. And I just needed to pause and say, God, help. I know I screwed up in the sermon. I skipped a point. And it was the enemy just kind of, even in the middle of the sermon, wanting to get off, off track. It's real. And again, I don't know where you're at, but we want to help, folks. And so take it to heart, this beautiful thing to live victorious in Christ. But I know this, we do need help. That's for sure. That's why I ask for prayer. How about you? To the not yet Christian, here's the call from Christ. He did something for you that you can't do for yourself. He lived victorious. He became the sinless sacrifice. Father, forgive them. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ as our baptismal candidates have expressed so beautifully? That's the privilege today. Start the journey of victory. Pray with me, please. Father, we need you. Jesus, we need you. Spirit, we need you. We thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it's empowering. Oh, help us internalize it. Help us to surrender like Jesus to your will. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. Empower Westwind, Father, to live victorious, to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Teach me how to trust what you